Hello and welcome to CAD Speaker Series podcast. This week, CID Student Ambassador Alexandra Gonzalez interviews Danielle Shidlowski, former Superintendent of Banking, Insurance and Private Retirement Funds in Peru. Danielle talks about how bank regulators can help make the world a better place by pushing the human rights agenda forward. He details the case of a mining project in Peru and tells what are the conditions to replicate this example in other countries. Welcome, Daniel, to the Center for International Development at Harvard uh, Weekly Speaker Series. Thank you for being here with us. Well, a delight, a pleasure to be here. It's always a privilege to be at the Kennedy School. Great. So today we had a very interesting talk about how bank regulation uh, can meet human rights and if uh, bank regulations can make the world a better place. This seems a very different approach to analyze the role of the banking system. Could you explain to our audience how can human rights, rights be promoted through bank regulation? Well, you know, at, at bottom, bank regulation has a purpose of ensuring that certain objectives are met. The, the primary one is that you want safety. You want banks to, to give back the money that people put in. So that involves a safety function. But you also want banks to ensure that some other fundamental things happen. Uh, certainly you make loans. You want to make sure the loans are used properly. If a bank funds something that is harmful, you'd at least want the bank to know. So at bottom, the purpose, the connection between human rights and credit has to do with risk. If, if a bank funds something which many people in the population think is harmful or undesirable, uh, there will be a reaction. Uh, and that reaction will probably increase the bank's risk. So the bank has to foresee what the reaction is going to be. The most paradigmatic case is one of uh, raw material extractive industries, where a mine gets put in a place where the population surrounding the mine doesn't want it. Uh, and there may be a very, very good mine in terms of the ore, But if the neighbors don't want it and they can prevent you from having access, then the ore is useless because you can't get it out. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that happens. So when that occurs, which is quite fairly common, you have, you have a mine, mine where people don't want it, uh, the police will come in and uh, the population will block access and then most likely somebody will get shot. And then it turns out you cannot open the mine because the level of opposition will be so large doesn't matter how good the ore is. You can't get it out. It's worth nothing. Now, if a bank funds uh, a venture of this sort and doesn't understand that it has to take into account the value of the ore as a consequence of the response of the population, it's not doing its job right. Mm -hmm. And then it has to fall to the regulator to make sure that these things get taken into account. So. Uh, and what is this? This is human rights, right? This is the human right of a population to object to whatever it's objecting to. And it may not be rational necessarily from a pure economic point of view. It may have some other reasons. There may be cultural reasons. Uh, there may be reasons of sharing the benefits. Whatever reasons might be. Uh, it behooves the financial institution to be aware of where it puts its feet or where its customers put their feet, more, more to the point. And so that indirectly says... If the regulator is not aware of what human rights are involved, it won't be doing its job properly. 
So it is clear that the interconnection between human rights and financial risk, uh, and this can also be implemented in practice. You served as a superintendent of banking, insurance, and private pension fund administrators of Peru, and also as the president of the Association of Bank Supervisors of the Americas. What role did these organizations take in pushing the human rights agenda forward? How did they do this uh, interconnection between human rights and financial risk? Well, you know, these things are all progressive and gradual. It's not something where you turn on the light and, and everything works. It's, it's a progressive matter. So we started in Peru recognizing that there was a major issue with a couple of large mines, one in particular called Conga, which, which was paradigmatic in that the population didn't want it. The mine was very large and very, you know, highly profitable in terms of, in terms of mining, you know, lots of gold. Uh, but the population wasn't about to let it happen. So in, in, as a real matter, it wasn't worth anything because it couldn't, and it hasn't been done. The, the oil is right in there. You can't get it out. Half the population of that province is absolutely opposed. So from the point of view of the bank regulator, you want to make sure that future cases of that sort are adequately perceived in advance so that whatever abatement measures are appropriate can be put in place. You don't want to do something people are adamantly opposed to, but you want to see, is there a way to accommodate the different interests involved? If, if there's a view that the water is going to be misused, you want to see, can we deal with the water issue? If there's a question of pollution, well, can we prevent dust from, the, from an open pit mine, from settling on the pastures that the cows are going to eat? Uh, there are many fixes but you have to start by understanding what the problem is. Why are people objecting? Why are they afraid? Why don't they want this? Uh, once you understand that, now this is something that behooves the operating companies that are going to do, that, you know, going to put in the project. But it also behooves the financiers of the project because a bad project is going to cause losses. Now, who absorbs the loss is another issue. But you don't want to be involved in loss-making, you know. And from the point of view of the regulator, you want to make sure your banks aren't lending to projects that are going to make losses. Now, since these things are gradual, the first time you do something like this is the hardest. By the time the fifth time comes around, it's routine. So Peru is the first country that implemented this regulation, and it took three years to get it out uh, because we wanted to make sure that there was consensus, that everybody was on board, that people... You know, and indeed, that's what happened. And, you know, it was uniform, good, good reaction. We got no pushback. But that's because we took our time. Had we tried to do it two years earlier, there would have been a lot of opposition. Now, the same thing happens internationally. Now that Peru has had it, one can expect, you know, other countries in good time to follow suit. Countries have different things and different issues. Partially, some have some environmental rules, some require banks to take some responsibility for, let's say, oil spills. They're not uniform. Yeah, so uh, what you have explained uh, shows us that it's in the interest of the banks and the regulators to do socio-environmental ex-ante evaluations. And you began speaking a little bit about the future, right? Who, who should persuade the countries and the regulation, regulators in other countries to to implement these kind of policies and regulations? Should they, they be binding or still voluntary? Uh, what okay. do you think about well, this? Well, I think you need binding regulations. Voluntary exists. The equator principles are there. 
Uh, the IFC rules are there. The OECD has its own rules. The UN guidelines uh, on business and human rights are there. Uh, all that's there. But uh, if you don't have a compulsory regulation, you don't have a regulation that's compulsory, what happens is that the competition uh, leads people to undercut each other and you don't get a level playing field. And you're also never sure how similar the implementations are. When there is proper supervision and it's a regulation which is enforced by the regulator, it's more orderly and you have more of the benefits. Uh, it's clear that it's got to be compulsory. And the institutions like that. Banks like to know by what rules they're supposed to operate. And they want to know that there are the, the competition operates by the same rules. The interesting thing is, what does that mean internationally? So Peru adopts it. Okay, very good. Um, now, how do you make sure that a bank financing something in Peru complies? Now, what we did is we said, anything that a bank in Peru is involved in that's $10 million or more has to comply. It doesn't matter where it's financed. But what's not so easy is when you have a neighboring country that uh, also has the same kind of natural resources and doesn't require the same rules. Then what will happen is, let's say in the case of Peru, a company will go and do copper operation in Chile rather than in, in, in Peru or will do copper somewhere else. It'll go to Zambia rather than Peru because you're competing inter across borders. That's harder. Mm -hmm. And so in order to have a uniform treatment of risk and human rights, you need to have eventually need to reach standardization across everybody. It will come, but you need to have a first case then you need a second case, and then a fifth case, and then you can generalize it. So what we're working on now, we have one case. We need to work on the case number two. Uh, and, you know, once we... Then, but it needs to be internationalized eventually, because otherwise you get a race to the bottom, and you, you don't want that. You want everybody to comply with the same kind of standards. Right. And for uh, the policymakers and the regulators that are hearing this uh, podcast, so you mentioned there is the... OECD uh, guidelines, the UN, the IFC, the World Bank, maybe even the ISO uh, standards on environmental and on, sure, on social responsibility mm -hmm. can take a place. Any other recommendations that you would give to policymakers and researchers on this topic? Well, you know, these are all trying to do very much the same thing. There are nuances of differences, right? Um, you know, I tend to think that that the UN guidelines are probably the most comprehensive and sort of balanced. When we put together the proven regulation, we, we went and looked at everything. We tried to get the pick the best from everything that we could. And so probably the, the set of rules to take as the starting point for the next country would be the proven rules, because the proven rules in some ways capture everything that was done before. More or less. I mean, you yeah. never capture everything, right? But you capture... Great. So hopefully we will have another example of a successful implementation of bank regulations. Uh, thank you again, Daniel, for coming to the seat and talking to us about the role of bank regulation to make the world a better place. A pleasure. And thank you for having me. Thank you. If you want to learn more about CID and our events, please visit cid.harvard.edu.